Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about leading people to become fully surrendered followers of King Jesus. Good morning. As you walked in, you probably got a little card. It is a, we're in the middle of a missions month. Um, so here's some prayer points for Mission India. If you look at the world map right now, the fastest growing church, depending on how you calculate it, is probably in Iran. Really interesting. The second fastest growing church is probably in China. And the third fastest growing church is probably in India. And one of the things that we do here is we attempt to take 10% off the top of everything we get through an entire calendar year, and then we invest it. Last year, we invested $60,800, and part of that went to Mission India. The rubric for how we decide who we partner with is essentially this. It's Jesus first, Jesus center, and Jesus always. It's then empowering the local church through indigenous peoples. So we're not sending... uh, us over necessarily to them, but we are empowering boots on the ground, indigenous peoples, um, locals in that country to reach other locals with the gospel. And so we have found Elam that we showed you last week, uh, Mission India that we showed you this week to be highly credible, and we are getting behind them. So take your card, stick it in your one-year Bible or in your regular Bible, and pray for them this week. We're going to continue to show over the next couple of weeks the different groups that we partner with. Okay. I think I did it. Good morning. I'm Michael Mattis. I'm the um, senior pastor here at Saltbox. We're glad you're with us. I want to look into the camera and welcome everyone who's joining us online. We are in the middle of going through the book of Acts. So we are actually in Acts 9. We're going to talk this morning about a guy named Ananias and then Saul, whom we've been talking about. I'm told that last week our recording and our videoing and everything that happened all crashed, and so we don't have that sermon online, so you can't go back and watch it. We may re-record it, stand by, depending on what is decided there. But we're in Acts 9. We're going to start in verse 9, and we're going to go all the way uh, to verse 20. I am going to cross-reference, and I'll just, you don't even have to go here if you don't want to, but I am going to cross-reference 1 John 4.18. I'm going to go ahead and read that for you. And we're going to attempt to sift Acts 9 through 1 John 4.18, which says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I'm also going to attempt to filter Acts 9 through Proverbs 9.10. If you want to make a note of that, Proverbs 9.10. And Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, as you can already begin to see, what we're jumping into this morning is fear. We're going to jump into fear. We're going to talk about fear. And we're going to attempt to look at um, Ananias and Saul. And potentially, we see really clearly in the text the fear that Ananias is in. We're going to um, probably presuppose beyond the text or into the text what Saul uh, could be feeling and the fear that he could be feeling. And we're going to attempt, if we can, to hold a tension between what I would call like sinful fear or fleshly fear, which is immobilizing versus God fear, fear of God, awe of God, love of God, reverence for God, the fear of God, which is mobilizing. You follow me? 
So sinful fleshly fear, which is immobilizing, versus the fear of God, which is mobilizing. Okay, so we're going to attempt to kind of hold that tension this morning. And if there was like a central couple things that I want to communicate to you, I would say this. You're going to live by faith or you're going to live by fear, but you can't do both. There will be moments in your Christian journey, if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, where you recognize you're living by fear and you have to repent and surrender and lay it down and choose to rise up and live by faith. But you cannot live by both. And then what we're going to attempt to do here is we're going to talk about what fear keeps us from. We're going to take a look at two core fears that emerge both from this text and the rest of the scriptures. And then we're going to take a look at fear in the life of Ananias, fear in the life of Saul, their choice to move through their fear to, come on, faith. All right, you're catching it. That's good. And then what we're going to do at the very end is we're going to do three sort of application points for overcoming fear in our daily lives. Okay? All right. So before I start to read, I'm going to tell you a funny story about me being afraid. Can you imagine? So uh, last week I actually told you that we hung a big swing in our backyard. Somebody even said they came by and tried to peek in the backyard and see if they could see the swing. Really? Somebody just told me that. So here's what happened. Um, I had somebody throw a football over a branch 55 feet off the ground. Big tree in our backyard. And then I fished a climbing rope over it. And I have a history of climbing. I have a history of heights. I have a, I, I'm uh, an instructor. I have trained. I have guided trips. I have summited big mountains. Like, I do this. Nevertheless, I'm 42. I'm not doing as much of it these days. So I got out there, and I fished my climbing rope over the branch 55 feet up, and I had a new rope that I was going to hang this um, huge swing with for our kids. Super excited about it. And so I got everything set, and I I couldn't use mechanical ascenders on the rope, so I used what's called a pressic knot. And so I had three pressic knots, and I was sliding them up the rope, and guess what I was doing? Climbing the tree. So I got 55 feet off the deck, and I went, I'm afraid. And when I used to climb more, we called it sewing machine leg. But your leg would start to... Some of you probably don't even know what a sewing machine is these days, right? <laughs> That's a machine that you use to sew fabric, okay? And you press a pedal, and your, your foot kind of shakes like this when you're pressing the pedal. Well, we used to call it sewing machine leg. You get up at heights, and all of a sudden your adrenaline's pumping, and really what you are is afraid. And your, 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 your leg starts to shake. And I realized, oh gosh, my leg's shaking. And for... A split minute or two, I went down the entire scenario. What if the branch fails? 55 feet's a long way. What if my harness fails? What if the rope fails? Our younger two kids and Abby are sitting in lawn chairs watching. (laughs) The next place my brain went as my leg was shaking, and Abby saw it. Later she said, your leg was shaking, wasn't it? I said, yeah, babe, I was afraid. The next place my brain went is if I fell in front of my kids and they had to watch an EMT come and get me, how would they grow up? I probably wouldn't die, but I'd have broken back, broken leg. I mean, I was, I'm thinking through all of this. And I had to go, okay, time out. This is crazy. Stop. And I just took a big deep breath. <sighs> I've worked at heights. I've done this. I've trained people. I rock climb. I'm very used to this. And I just took a minute and looked at the branch, bomb proof, looked at my rope. Bomb proof, looked at my harness, looked at my three climbing devices that I'm hooked to, and I went, okay, I am safe. I'm okay. Now, 
I had to rig up this swing 55 feet off the deck. And so I began to do that. This is very important, and it's going to come full circle at the end of this message on Ananias and Saul. Did my fear go away? What did I do? I authentically surveyed the situation, logically went through it. The emotion was still present. My little leg was still embarrassingly shaking. I rigged the swing, and I worked through it. Somebody I like named Joyce Meyer says, if you're afraid, do it afraid. I want you to hear something. You can call fear a number of different things. We could call it anxiety. We could call it apprehension. We could call it, you know, there's a number of ways that it would manifest. But uh, fear can be absolutely debilitating. And I don't think it ever fully goes away. In this life, I think that there are things that you have to work through in spite of the sewing machine leg. Okay? You're going to live by faith or you're going to live by fear, but you can't do both. In the Gospels, I'm not going to take you there, but in the Gospels, the number one theme in the like imperative statements of the Lord Jesus, and I found at least 21 times where he says some variation of don't be afraid, fear not, have courage, Take heart, that's what Jesus says, 21 times. And what's interesting is more than any other statement that Jesus issues to people is this idea of don't be afraid. What's other, the other interesting thing is what makes Christianity as a faith unique is that we are a faith that teaches love. We're a faith that teaches the love of God. We're the only faith where God and his divine love came down and made a way for humans to enter into not only paradise eternal, the kingdom of heaven now. We're the only, uh, it's a relationship base where God comes to humans and makes a way, makes a bridge by which we can enter into that eternal relationship, enter into even the kingdom of heaven now. But it is all uh, sort of built on that love, divine love for uh, God's love for us as humans, our love in response to him and then our love for each other but what's fascinating to me is that Jesus doesn't simply say love he actually says the most fear not take courage and I think that Jesus probably knew that in order to walk in love you have to have faith and to have faith you must walk through fear so before we start reading in Acts 9, let's just talk what, about what fear keeps us from. Fear keeps us from loving deeply. Fear keeps us from living generously. Fear keeps us from dreaming big. Fear keeps us from living courageously. Fear keeps us from loving deeply. I mean, think about, our, I'm thinking about our kids, and I was thinking back to even when they are, went through the period where you're afraid of the dark, Right? At some point, you as a person, like daddy can't do it, mama can't do it, but you as a person have to get up and walk over to the closet and open the door and discover what? Boogeyman's not there. He's not as bad as I thought. You have to get down and look under the bed and go, okay, I'm okay. But you have to get up and face your fear. You've got to walk through it into faith. Fear creates a scarcity mentality. Fear keeps us from dreaming big and living courageously because you can't have big dreams if you're full of fear about what could take place. The idea of taking risks oftentimes becomes so abhorrent to us. We want to play it safe. And when we play it safe, we're at risk of missing out. There's some risk that is okay. 
I'd even say to you that fear breeds fear. The more we focus on it, the more exaggerated and distorted our fear becomes. If I sat there at the top of the branch and kept on just ruminating on my fear, they might have had to call the fire department to haul my hide down. That would have been embarrassing. That would have been a whole different story today, wouldn't it? But let me say gently that fear, I think, when we feed it, can give way to like a spiritual amnesia where we forget about the goodness of God, the good things he's done, the faithfulness over our lives. And I don't think God placed us on this earth to be safe. He placed us on this earth to be in deep abiding relationship with him and experience the adventure of how God is going to work in and through our lives, both glorifying him and enjoying him forever. Amen? So if you spend your life hunkering down, building safety walls and bunkers and making everything sort of safe, you you may create this idea of safety and security, but you may be living by fear and you may be missing out. So if you're here today and you go, man, I struggle with fear, then go, Lord, would you open my heart, would you open my mind, and would you speak to me this morning? If you're here today and don't think you struggle with fear, you might need to say, Lord, would you reveal to me how I struggle with fear? Jordan Peterson, um, the Canadian psychologist, actually says, and I love this because I think this is how this ties to children. But he said, let children do dangerous things safely. That's how we raise our kids. There's moments Abby looks at me and goes, really? Let children do dangerous things safely. It begins to instill in them how to face and overcome fears. Okay, next little comment before we start reading. I believe there's two core fears. If we search from Genesis to Revelation, if we go back to the garden, Genesis 2 and 3, if you want to make a note and read that at some point, I think humans essentially deal with the fear of rejection and we deal with the fear of shame. Okay? And I would actually propose to you that the fear of rejection and the fear of being shamed is more strong in the human psyche, the human spirit, whatever we are, than the fear of death. I think even me sitting on that tree, I'm going, okay, if I fell, I could die. What's even worse, though, is I get embarrassed, ashamed. I can't do it in front of my kids, wife, family. You follow me? There's something there you can unfold that as we go, but I'm pretty convinced that the fear of shame is the core human fear. And what is shame? What is rejection? It's relational death, the death of relationship, the death of our sort of soul, and we are relational beings created to be in relationship with God and each other. Okay, let's start reading in Acts 9, and we're going to start in verse 7. Now, just to remind you, this is Saul. Saul is, he's been breathing out murderous threats. Um, Jesus has ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has been released at Pentecost. The church is probably 15,000 people. Persecution broke out in the church in Jerusalem. This guy named Stephen was killed at the hands of Saul, the very same Saul that we're talking about. And therefore, the church scattered. So everyone except the apostles, the original 11 plus uh, 1, 12, went and went all throughout the countryside. And with them, they carried the 
gospel of Jesus. So they carried hope and they're sharing Jesus everywhere they go. And everywhere people go, these people are coming to Christ. Converts are happening from Judaism to Christianity. People are giving their hearts to this Jesus. And all of a sudden, churches are springing up. It's a beautiful time in church history. And so Saul then has been authorized. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's one of the most educated in the nation of Israel. He's a young guy, probably almost 30 at this point. And he has been authorized by the great Sanhedrin with papers to go and find Christians, persecute them, torture them, beat them, throw them in prison, and even kill them. Okay, So he's riding down this road to Damascus, um, which is in Syria. It's right outside of Israel. And he's on his high horse. Let's go all the way back to verse 4 of Acts chapter 9. It says, He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In Acts 22 and in Acts 26, he actually shares that he sees the Lord Jesus. So he gets knocked off his horse. Light falls on him. He's now on his face. And as he is looking up into this blinding light, it's noon. It's high noon in the Middle East. So a hot, bright sun. And yet the, the sun of Jesus, the light of Jesus is even brighter than the brightness of the day. And he looks up and he's seeing the person of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In verse 5, Saul answers, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus. We talked about that, but Jesus is referencing Exodus 3.14 where God introduced himself to Moses as I am. I am Jesus. I am Yahweh, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, I want to just pause here because, well, let's go ahead and do verse 7. The men traveling along with Saul stood there speechless. Now, what could we also insert instead of speechless? Afraid, fearful, concerned. What is happening? And it says in Acts 22 and in Acts 26 where Paul tells about this moment. Saul and Paul is used. Paul is the name, the, the Roman name that Paul went by. Uh, Saul went by in his, in his later ministry years. So occasionally I'll use those two interchangeably. But the people were speechless. And it says that they heard the sound like thunder, but they couldn't hear what the voice was saying. And they, they had this fearless leader who was ruthless and sort of bloodthirsty and going after people and torturing them and killing them and throwing them in prison. And all of a sudden he's speechless, which like never happens, right? This guy always knows what to say and how to say it. So he's thrown off his horse. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, meaning the sound of the voice of Jesus. Yep. But they did not see anyone. So a thunderous sound. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So he's blind. And I think this is huge spiritual significance here because he has been blind for the entirety of his life. And for the first time in his life, he can see, just not physically. Okay. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. All right, so let's just open this up. This is Saul's fear here for just a second. Almost assuredly, because of Saul's age and because of his position in the great Sanhedrin, his position as a Pharisee, his position having been trained at the feet of Gamaliel, he would have had a wife, which, and that probably means that he would also have children. We don't know that. It's nowhere in Scripture. That is purely a premise. But no Pharisee would have gotten to that point, at that status that he was at without having a 
wife. So I'm going to propose to you that as Saul is knocked off his horse and he has lived his entire life being a Pharisee of Pharisees, he's been trained, he's been educated, he's the best of the best, he's the brightest, he's the future hope of Israel, and all of a sudden he is at this place where he is going, oh my goodness, if Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish carpenter whom we crucified, is actually Yahweh God, then in the entirety of Judaism, so the entire system from which I come from, is actually wrong. And if they are wrong, then me, who's been representing them, is also wrong. And if I actually now go back to them and begin to say that Jesus of Nazareth, this Jewish carpenter from know-nothing Nazareth, is actually Yahweh God, the Messiah, then what's going to happen to me? I'm probably going to lose my position as a Pharisee. I'm probably going to lose my income. I'm probably going to lose my respect. I'm probably going to lose my dignity. I'm probably going to be kicked out of my synagogue. I'm probably going to be kicked off the great Sanhedrin. My wife will probably leave me. My father will probably abandon me. My parents will probably kick me out. No one will take me in. If this is true, what if will anyone even believe me? Can you imagine what's going on inside of him as he gets up from the ground and he's now blind? He's seen this Jesus. He's beginning to connect the dots because he is so trained. So he is thinking back through all of the Old Testament. The dots are being connected for him. And he's going, if Jesus is, then this Old Testament text pointed to Jesus as the suffering servant. We thought he was going to come as the new King David riding on a horse, overthrowing Rome. No, 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 no. He came as a suffering servant, actually not to set up a kingdom that would overthrow Rome, but to set up the eternal kingdom of God like the revelation is just coming, like, a, like, like his entire mind and being is being electrified as he is looking back into the past. But simultaneously as that electrifying revelation is happening inside of him, I think this gripping fear, and I'm reading this into the text, but I think this gripping fear is probably on him. What if everybody leaves me and rejects me and I'm left alone and ashamed? And more than that, I can almost assuredly say that if I stand up and say that Jesus is the Messiah, then everyone will leave me. The way I actually read Paul's relationship with Timothy, and we'll go here in the future as we go through the book of Acts, but Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and he calls him my true son in the faith. And what I actually believe is that Paul was probably married. He did probably have kids. He was probably rejected by them. And God met this need inside of Paul through this adopted son, Timothy. I can't prove that in scripture, but it's just my personal opinion. So Saul is here, and for three days he is blind. He's not eating or drinking anything, so they would have led him to Judas's house on Straight Street. I wish we could go here today because we could actually go to Damascus. We could go to Straight Street, and we could go to the approximate spot where this house would have been. And so this great Saul of Tarsus, the mighty, the powerful, the brave, the ruthless, is led to Judas's house, and he goes into his little chamber, and he shuts the door, and he just gets down probably on his knees or on his face, and he just sits in his darkness, and he begins, and the revelation of God begins to come. And I imagine that they bring him food and water, and they open the door, and they stick it inside, and plates begin to pile up with his food, and his followers don't know what to do, and he was supposed to come there and actually go around and hurt and hunt down and grab Christians and throw them in prison and try them and even kill them, and he's not doing any of that. He's just sitting in his room in total quietness. He's refusing to eat. He's refusing to drink. He is sitting, perhaps, in his fear, weighing the consequences of what will happen in his life if he stands up and says this. Let's keep going. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Now, 
we know that all of the disciples, all of the believers in Jesus began in the city of Jerusalem. We know this persecution broke out. We know that people went out and both shared Jesus. But it is likely that Ananias actually has spent some time in Jerusalem. Now, let me also just make a quick note for any of you who are going, is this the same Ananias that we read about in four or five chapters ago? I would say no. This is a different Ananias. There's three Ananiases in Scripture. All three of them are different. This Ananias we hear about so, it's so quick, it's so short, um, but he is one of the most impactful characters in the Bible because he led, in my opinion, the greatest apostle um, to faith. And Saul, who becomes Paul, his writings has influenced the entirety of Christendom, past, present, and future. Okay, so in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. I love that Christians are called what there? Disciples. Are you a disciple? There was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Now, I don't think this is a text for how God speaks to us at all times, but is God able to speak in a vision? Yes. Well, I imagine Ananias sitting awake in the day. He's eating, he's writing, he's in his room. I don't know where he is. Maybe he was out on his horse walking in the countryside. Now, Ananias was possibly in Jerusalem, and Ananias at least possibly could have seen uh, this wild man named Saul um, go in and attack people. What if he just went, no thank you? Could he have? Yes. The, the, the posture of your heart before a holy, timeless, creator, sovereign, God of the angel armies, Lord, uh, and your willingness to even be receptive to his voice and his direction is imperative on his willingness to speak to you. Okay? So Ananias responds, yes, Lord. And I bet he's already afraid. I love all the Bible passages where it talks about God showing up or angels showing up. And usually people get afraid, they get pale, they hit their face, they're on their, you know. And, and then sometimes in our modern day times, you'll hear somebody who in a cavalier way talks about experiencing the presence of God or an angel or a supernatural. And when someone is cavalier about that, I'm always like, yeah, right. Because when God shows up scripturally, it's like God is here. So God shows up to Ananias Calls to him in a vision. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Now, Judas would have been a super important wealthy Pharisee. And who's staying there? The great persecutor Saul, who's commissioned to hunt down Christians. And what does Ananias immediately know? The entirety of this guy Saul's life is dedicated to hunting down Christians, to persecuting them. And now you are calling me to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And immediately Ananias knows, who's staying at the house of Judas on Straight Street? Saul. And what's Saul here to do? Probably kill me. So what, Lord? So immediately he's got the fear of God, okay, the fear that God's speaking to him, yes, okay. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. There's a different sermon there, we're not going to deal with it today, but that's beautiful. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. Now, who's seen in a vision? Saul, okay. Come and place his hands on him to receive his sight. Now, here we get to see Ananias' fear. Verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. You know, if he's saying that out loud to God Almighty, what is he actually thinking? 
this guy's crazy. This guy's blood. I will probably die. Why are you sending me to death? No, I don't want to do this. Verse 14, he has come here to Damascus with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. What if Ananias had said no right here? No, thank you, God. I don't want to do that. I don't want that assignment. I don't want to carry that responsibility. Could he have? You better believe it. That's free will in the context of God's sovereignty. You know, one of the things that I wonder, and I won't get to know until I get to paradise and stand before the Lord Jesus, but one of the things I want to ask is, in this moment, how many hearts did God search through and sift before he went, Ananias will do it for me? Just wonder. How many people he looked at and went, they won't, they won't, they won't, they won't, he will. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. Verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How about that being your ministry call? You're going to suffer. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul. Did he say enemy Saul? What did he say? Brother Saul. Now, let's just imagine this for just a minute. I imagine, now this is Michael's conjecture. I'm, I'm sort of inserting myself into the story. I'm reading in between the texts. But I imagine, based on Ananias' fear response to God's call, that when he went, he arrived to Judas's house on Straight Street, and he might have stood across the street for a while. Because he's afraid. What if he bailed out? What if he went, oh, I bet that wasn't God after all. I'm going to go. Do we do that? Come on, yes. What if they make fun of me? What if they shame me? What if they kill me? What if they parade me down straight street and crucify me at the end of the street? What if they stone me like they did Stephen? What if they flog me and put me on trial? What if I lose my wife and my kids and my family? And what if I lose my church community? Can you imagine the what ifs that are going on inside of this guy? Go to Saul and pray for him. He's seen you coming. So Ananias, I bet his heart is just beating out of his chest, right? Did he, was his fear still present? It would have been. So how did he navigate to Saul? He walked right through it. He did it afraid is what I would be willing to wager. So I imagine that he gets to this guy Judas's house and he knocks on the door and Judas is a Pharisee and he's like, who are you? You're one of these crazy Christians. We got to, you know kill you on the spot, in in his mind perhaps, and he leads Ananias to this guy Saul's chamber, and Ananias knocks, and then he goes in, and I imagine Saul, now this is Michael's conjecture again, but I imagine Saul on the floor um, experiencing this great humility of heart before God. His eyes are crusted over and probably nasty that some weird film or something over them, and he cannot see. He hasn't eaten or taken a bath or uh, washed, done anything in three days. He hasn't drunk anything in three days. He's probably a little bit stinky. It's hot in there. It's still. And he is sitting there. And all of a sudden, Ananias comes in. And he has seen in a vision that this guy Ananias is going to come. And he knows that Ananias is a Christian, right? He is a follower of Jesus of Nazareth who appeared to him on the Damascus road. So Ananias is walking in. And I am sure, and he could have even remembered seeing Ananias, but he knows the Christians are afraid of him. And so Ananias comes in. And I'm sure Paul is actually, or Saul at this point, is like braced to be hurt or abused or made fun of or laughed at. But instead, Ananias comes in and he says, 
brother, brother. There's this immediate like invitation through the fear. So you got Ananias' fear, you got Paul or Saul's fear, and you have Ananias calling him brother, reaching through the fear, working through the fear, working through the sewing machine leg and the pounding chest, right? And offering life to this guy, Saul, who is getting ready to probably be kicked out of his home and his family and his synagogue and lose absolutely everything. And so Ananias faces his fear. He comes in and he says, went into the house, verse 17, and he entered it. And he placed his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. There is a a river about a half mile from Straight Street in Damascus, and it's possible that Ananias took um, Saul into the little fountain, a reservoir of water that would have been in the courtyard of Judas' house, and he took a pitcher and he baptized Saul that way. But knowing Saul, being the ferocious zealot that he was, I am willing to bet that he said, no, 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 take me, let's walk a half a mile all the way to the river, and I want to be fully dunked and submerged in that river. And I can imagine as these two men are walking side by side, and Saul is even beginning to ask questions. Jesus said this, the prophets said this, the Torah said this, Moses foretold this, this Jesus of Nazareth. And and this man's mind who is sharp as a trap is beginning to connect all of the dots and the theological revelations are beginning to come together. And this revelation is beginning to take hold inside of him. Is he, Saul, probably afraid? Yeah. What he is going to face. And even Ananias said, I would be willing to bet, Ananias said, you're going to suffer a lot for the name of? And it could have even, that little statement, if Ananias would have said it to Saul, that little statement could have actually, again, triggered all of Saul's internal fears where he went, there it is, I'm probably going to lose my family. I'm probably going to lose my friends. I'm probably going to lose my past. I'm probably going to be all the what ifs. Go filtering out in his mind. When Ananias stood at that door, knocking and then going in, Ananias had to ask himself, am I going to trust my feelings of fear or am I going to press through them into faith and trust God? I think at that point Ananias could have been afraid, he could have quit, or he could have chosen to keep going. But either way, it was going to be difficult. Saul's fear, Saul's fear of being rejected, Saul's fear of being shamed. And here are these two men. So let me shift here for just a minute and let's make three application points into your life and mine from these scriptures. How do we overcome fear in our daily lives? Here they are. Number one, You choose the fear of God over human fear. Go back all the way to the beginning. The 
Human fear, fleshly fear, sinful fear is immobilizing. The fear of God, the respect of God, the reverence of God, the honor of Yahweh God, the honor of King Jesus, um, the fear of God is actually mobilizing. It's empowering. So number one, you choose the fear of God over human fear. Number two, you practice the presence of Jesus. Day by day, moment by moment, God is with you. If you're hanging in a tree, if you're Ananias going to knock on Judas's house, wherever you are, if you're in God and God's in you, then he is with you and you can begin to access his person and his presence in your car, in the kitchen. Brother Lawrence, this guy I love, he wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God and he talks about practicing the presence of God while you're chopping wood, while you're standing at the sink washing dishes. You can begin to engage with and invite this interpersonal uh, relationship in the abiding presence of God. So number one, choose the fear of God over human fear. Practice the presence of Jesus, number two. And then thirdly, move through your fear. You can't go around it. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You've got to go straight through it. And oftentimes, God calls us to do the thing that we fear the most. Abby and I laugh sometimes in our marriage because anytime she says, I'm never da-da-da-da-da, what do we eventually do? I'm like, oh, great, Abby said I'm never. A friend of mine, Dr. Scott Bennett, says this. He says, instead of trying to understand our emotions logically, we give them way too much power as if they were the ultimate truth. Emotions are a real phenomenon, but they are not always reality. I'll say it again. Instead of trying to understand our emotions logically, we give them way too much power as if they were the ultimate truth. Emotions, like fear, are a real phenomenon, but they are not always reality. You must acknowledge your fear or whatever negative emotion you're in and then actually move through it. As a reminder, you're gonna live by faith or you're gonna live by fear, but you can't do both. If Jesus is accurate, and I believe he is, then possibly the number one issue people struggle with in normal circumstances is fear. Michael's sewing machine leg. Jesus offers us the way of faith by moving through fear, by moving through insecurity, by moving through anxiety. We can tackle our fears head on. We can practice his presence. We can choose the fear of God over human fear. We can choose to move through fear. And as we move through fear, what you're gonna begin to find is hope and faith takes hold inside of you and the reality that you can live free of fear and the fullness of faith in Christ Jesus will find its way into your heart. Yeah.
Amen. Hey. 
as you go today, may you know the presence of the Lord Jesus. May you sense his gracious hand on your life. May you be aware of his voice. May you be stirred up to new life in Christ Jesus. May you press through your deepest fears to find purpose and faith. May you be a fellowship and may you experience the fellowship of his sufferings. And may you experience the resurrection life of Christ in you and through you. Go sharing Jesus powerfully everywhere you go. We love you. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.